Chapter Twenty Four, Part One of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Four, The Hundred Years' War. Charles the Seventh and Joan of Arc, fourteen twenty two to fourteen sixty two, part one. Whilst Charles the Sixth was dying at Paris, his son Charles the Dauphin was on his way back from Saintonge to Berry, where he usually resided. On the twenty fourth of October, fourteen twenty two, at Mehun sur Yevre, he heard of his father's death. For six days longer, from the twenty fourth to the twenty ninth of October, he took no style but that of regent as if he were waiting to see what was going to happen elsewhere in respect of the succession to the throne. It was only when he knew that, on the 27th of October, the Parliament of Paris had, not without some little hesitation and ambiguity, recognized as King of England and of France, Henry the Sixth, son of Henry V, lately deceased, that the Dauphin Charles assumed on the 30th of October, in his castle of mehun sur yevre the title of king, and repaired to Bourges to inaugurate in the cathedral of that city his reign as Charles the Seventh. He was twenty years old, and had as yet done nothing to gain for himself, not to say anything of glory, the confidence and hopes of the people. He passed for an indolent and frivolous prince, abandoned to his pleasures only, one whose captivity there was nothing to foreshadow, and of whom France, outside of his own court, scarcely ever thought at all. Some days before his accession he had all but lost his life at Rochelle by the sudden breaking down of the room in the Episcopal Palace, where he was staying, and so little did the country know of what had happened to him, that, a short time after the accident, messengers sent by some of his partisans had arrived at Bourges to inquire if the prince were still living. At a time when not only the crown of the kingdom, but the existence and independence of the nation were at stake, Charles had not given any signs of being strongly moved by patriotic feelings. He was in person a handsome prince, and handsome in speech with all persons, and compassionate towards poor folks, says his contemporary Monstrier. But he did not readily put on his harness, and he had no heart for war if he could do without it. On ascending the throne, this young prince, so little of the politician and so little of the knight, encountered at the head of his enemies the most able amongst the politicians and warriors of the day, in the Duke of Bedford, whom his brother Henry V had appointed regent of France, and had charged to defend on behalf of his nephew Henry VI, a child in the cradle, the crown of France, already more than half won. Never did struggle appear more unequal or native king more inferior to foreign pretender. Sagacious observers, however, would have easily discerned, in the cause which appeared the stronger and the better supported, many seeds of weakness and danger. When Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, heard at Arras that Charles the Sixth was dead, it occurred to him immediately that if he attended the obsequies of the English King of France, he would be obliged, French prince as he was, and cousin Germain of Charles the Sixth, to yield precedence to John, Duke of Bedford, Regent of France, and uncle of the new king, Henry the Sixth, He resolved to hold aloof, and contented himself with sending to Paris chamberlains to make his excuses, and supply his place with a regent. On the 11th of November, 1422, 
the Duke of Bedford followed alone at the funeral of the late King of France, and alone made offering at the Mass. Alone he went, but with the sword of state borne before him as regent. The people of Paris cast down their eyes with restrained wrath. They wept, says a contemporary, and not without cause, for they knew not whether for a long, long while they would have any king in France. But they did not for long confine themselves to tears. Two poets, partly in Latin and partly in French, Robert Blondel and Alain Cartier, whilst deploring the public woes, excited the popular feeling. Conspiracies soon followed the songs. One was set on foot at Paris to deliver the city to King Charles the Seventh, but it was stifled ruthlessly. Several burgesses were beheaded, and one woman was burned. In several great provincial towns, at Troyes and at Rheims, the same fervent showed itself, and drew down the same severity. William Proust, superior of the Carmelites, was accused of propagating sentiments favourable to the Dauphin, as the English called Charles the Seventh. Being brought, in spite of the privileges of his gown, before John Cochin, lieutenant of the captain of Rheims, related probably to Peter Cochin, bishop of Beauvais, who nine years afterwards was to sentence Joan of Arc to be burned, he stoutly replied, Never was English king of France, and never shall be. The country had no mind to believe in the conquest it was undergoing, and the Duke of Burgundy, the most puissant ally of the English, sulkily went on eluding the consequences of the anti-national alliance he had accepted. Such being the disposition of conquerors and conquered, the war, though still carried on with great spirit, could not, and in fact did not, bring about any decisive result from 1422 to 1429. Towns were alternately taken, lost, and retaken, at one time by the French, at another by the English or Burgundians. Petty encounters and even important engagements took place with vicissitudes of success and reverses on both sides. At crevant sur yon on the 31st of July, 1423, and at Verneuil, in Normandy, on the 17th of August, 1424, the French were beaten, and their faithful allies, the Scots, suffered considerable loss. In the latter affair, however, several Norman lords deserted the English flag, refusing to fight against the King of France. On the 26th of September, 1423, at La Gravelle in Maine, the French were victorious, and Du Gusclin was commemorated in their victory. Anne de Laval, granddaughter of the great Breton warrior, and mistress of a castle hard by the scene of action, sent thither her son, Andrew de Laval, a child of twelve years of age, and, as she buckled with her own hands the sword which his ancestor had worn, she said to him, God make thee as valiant as he whose sword this was. The boy received the order of knighthood on the field of battle, and became afterwards a marshal of France. Little bands, made up of volunteers, attempted enterprises which the chiefs of the regular armies considered impossible. Stephen de Vignol, celebrated under the name of La Hire, resolved to succor the town of Montargis besieged by the English, and young Dunoy, the bastard of Orléans, joined him. On arriving, September 5, 1427, between the walls of the place, a priest was encountered in their road. La Hire asked him for absolution. The priest told him to confess. "'I have no time for that,' said La Hire. "'I am in a hurry. I have done in the way of sins all that men of war are in the habit of doing.' Whereupon, says the chronicler, the chaplain gave him absolution for what it was worth and Lahire, putting his hands together, said, 
God, I pray thee to do for Lahire this day as much as thou wouldst have Lahire do for thee, if he were God, and thou art Lahire. And Montargis was rid of its besiegers. The English determined to become masters of Mont-Saint-Michel au Perel de la Mer, that abbey built on a rock facing the western coast of Normandy, and surrounded every day by the waves of ocean. The thirty-second abbot, Robert Jovelet, promised to give the place up to them, and went to Rouen with that design. But one of his monks, John Annault, being elected victor-general by the chapter, and supported by some valiant Norman warriors, offered an obstinate resistance for eight years, baffled all the attacks of the English, and retained the abbey in the possession of the King of France. The inhabitants of La Rochelle rendered the same service to the King and to France in a more important case. On the 15th of August, 1427, an English fleet of a hundred and twenty sail, it is said, appeared off their city with invading troops aboard. The Rochellese immediately levied upon themselves an extraordinary tax, and put themselves in a state of defense. Troops raised in the neighborhood went and occupied the heights bordering on the coast, and a bold Breton sailor, Bernard de Kercaban, put to sea to meet the enemy, with ships armed as privateers. The attempt of the English seemed to them to offer more danger than chance of success, and they withdrew. Thus Charles the Seventh kept possession of the only seaport remaining to the crown. Almost everywhere, in the midst of a war as indecisive as it was obstinate, local patriotism and the spirit of chivalry successfully disputed against foreign supremacy, the scattered fragments of the fatherland and the throne. In order to put an end to this doubtful condition of events and of minds, the Duke of Bedford determined to aim a grand blow at the national party in France and at her king. After Paris and Rouen, Orléans was the most important city in the kingdom. It was supreme on the banks of the Loire, as Paris and Rouen were on those of the Seine. After having obtained from England considerable reinforcements, commanded by leaders of experience, the English commenced, in October 1428, the siege of Orléans. The approaches to the place were occupied in force, and bastilles closely connected one with another were constructed around the walls. As a set-off, the most valiant warriors of France, La Hire, Dunois, Zantrail, and the Marshal Lafayette threw themselves into Orléans, the garrison of which amounted to scarcely twelve hundred men. Several towns, Bourges, Portier, and La Rochelle, sent thither money, munitions, and militia. The states-general assembled at Chinon, voted an extraordinary aid, and Charles the Seventh called out the regulars and the reserves. Assaults on the one side and sorties on the other were begun with ardor. Besiegers and besieged quite felt that they were engaged in a decisive struggle. The first encounter was unfortunate for the Orleanese. In a fight called the Herring Affair, they were unsuccessful in an attempt to carry off a supply of victuals and salt fish, which Sir John Falstaff was bringing to the besiegers. Being a little discouraged, they offered the Duke of Burgundy to place their city in his hands, that it might not fall into those of the English, and Philip the Good accepted the offer, but the Duke of Bedford made a formal objection. He didn't care, he said, to beat the bushes for another to get the birds. Philip, in displeasure, withdrew from the siege the small force of Burgundians he had sent. The English remained alone before the place, which was every day harder pressed and more strictly blockaded the besieged were far from foreseeing what succor was preparing for them. End of chapter 24, part 1